we just uh, sang it. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to it. Uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 132. I also invite you to find uh, two additional passages of Scripture. Now, the first is 2 Samuel 7, and the other is 2 Chronicles 6. Now, I realize that's a tall order. Let me repeat it. Psalm 132, that's our text, but I want you to find two other places. And if you're not that familiar with the Bible, you know, there, there, you'll find a table of contents uh, at the outset, and you can look up these books in the page numbers, Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 and Second Chronicles chapter 6. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but I, I do want us to see the interconnectedness of Scripture, how one Scripture relates uh, to another. And so I hope you're able to find those three passages. Again, the most important being Psalm 132. I won't ask for a show of hands. Uh, well-known Scots poet, Robbie Burns. I'm sure you've all heard of him. Some of you have heard of him. Uh, you'll have heard of this phrase, a little line, a little stanza from one of his most famous poems. The best laid plans of mice and men go oft awry. He wrote that last century, I guess it was. Century before last. And uh, the context of that little poem and that line is, is interesting. He was out plowing a field. And as he was plowing in the field, he turned over, he destroyed a mouse's nest. And it got him thinking that mouse had put all of its time, all of its effort into building that nest, building its home. And it did not see this coming. It did not anticipate this plow. It did not anticipate this human. It did not anticipate that his home would be swept away in one foul swoop, so to speak. And so that got Robbie Burns to thinking, and he penned that poem. And in it, he compares the mouse's plight with man's plight. The best laid plans of mice and men go oft awry. Whether you be a mouse, whether you be a man, whether you be poor, whether you be rich, whether you be weak, whether you be strong, it makes no difference. Our plans are contingent. Our plans, the best laid plans, are always contingent. They are contingent upon innumerable forces outside of us. And so I'm planning a picnic. Don't ask why. I'm planning a picnic next Saturday. Completely hypothetical. I've planned this picnic, and uh, this picnic is contingent, isn't it? It's contingent on the weather. If it rains, my picnic is ruined. I'll cancel it, reschedule it. It's contingent on my guests, those whom I invite to attend my picnic. They might get a better offer. Uh, they might choose. To, it's inconceivable. I know Mike finds that hilarious. Better offer? They might find something better to do, and uh, they decide not to show up. My picnic, it's a bust, it's a bomb, it's ruined. My car might break down Saturday morning, and so I end up showing up late for my own picnic. It's delayed, I might have to cancel it altogether. You get the idea. Our best laid plans are contingent. They are entirely, oh, and the sooner we learn this, the better. They are entirely, completely dependent upon forces outside of 
ourselves. Now, here's a glorious truth. God's plan is not like that. God's plan is not like that at all because God's plan is not contingent upon any forces outside of himself. God's plan rests upon his unrivaled power. It rests upon his unfathomable knowledge. And it rests upon his unquestionable wisdom. And Psalm 132 is beautiful. I trust it will be beautiful to you this day. It is beautiful for many reasons. This is one of the most significant reasons, is it presents to us. It puts on display for us this unchangeable, unalterable plan. And so follow along as I read it. We sang it, beautiful, singing it, celebrating it. It's it's a tremendous prayer. And now hear it as I read the word of the Lord publicly for us. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away from the the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread, her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now I can empathize with some of you. I recognize immediately that there, this psalm is a little tricky. Ark, testimonies, Jacob, eyelids, a horn sprouting from somewhere, a lamp that's used for anointing, a crown that is shining. We have all of these words, all of these terms, all of these phrases, all of the concepts. It's like talking a foreign language, isn't it, at times? But uh, we're going to proceed slowly. Uh, somewhat cautiously, and we're going to try to do three things with this psalm. Let me give them to you right at the outset, no surprises. The first is this. We're going to wrestle with its setting, its setting and its structure. We can understand this. I know it appears a little difficult, but we can understand this. There's no reason why we can't understand this. If we wrestle a little bit, just a wee bit, with its setting and its structure, And then we want to address its scope, its significance. The the fellow who wrote this, what's he saying? What does he mean? What is the meaning of all this? 
And then we want to drive it home. That's the third, third thing we want to do, application. How do we bridge the gap between, between centuries ago and, and now? How do we bridge this, this gap between the man who wrote this psalm and my life where I live today. So that's our order of business, the three things we're going to try to do. So we begin with its setting and structure. Very important because there is a definite historical setting to this song. And there is a definite grammatical structure. I've just frightened away half of you with those two phrases, but there it is. There is a historical setting, and there is a grammatical structure. And we need to come to terms with these in order to understand what the psalm means. And so as we try to come to terms with these, where do, we play? where do we begin? Where's the place to start? You're probably thinking to yourself, well, we start in the first verse, the very beginning. Normally I'd say, yes, amen, that's the place we should start, but not with this psalm. If we want to get its setting, and if we want to understand its structure, the place to begin, oddly enough, is actually in the middle, with verses 8, 9, and 10. Here's the essence of the psalmist's prayer. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You in the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Now, why is that the place to start? In the middle. Now, I asked you to find 2 Chronicles chapter 6, didn't I? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm just going to plow ahead, assuming you all found it, and you have part of your bulletin in there, and you can now turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, and look at what we read. In verses 41 and 42 of 2 Chronicles 6, try to keep your left eye on that passage. Yeah, try this, 2 Chronicles 6, 41 and 42. Keep your right eye on Psalm 132, verses 8, 9, and 10. Look at what we read in 2 Chronicles 6, 41. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you in the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. So what do we have in 2 Chronicles 6, 41 and 42? We have Psalm 132, verses 8, 9, and 10. There is our what? Our historical setting. That this psalm actually comes from somewhere. This psalm was actually written at a point in history. And so the obvious question is this, well, what's going on in 2 Chronicles 6? What's happening there? There's a man named Solomon. Who is he? He's the king of Israel. He is David's son. What has Solomon just done? He's just built a temple. He has just finished completing this massive construction project that is the temple of the living God in the city of Jerusalem. And now he is having this inauguration, or if you like, this dedication service, dedication ceremony, and he pens, prepares this psalm, this song as part of this celebration. And so we have recorded back in that historical context, 2 Chronicles 6, this portion of this psalm in which Solomon basically asked for three things. You see them there in 2 Chronicles 6. Go back to Psalm 132, verses 8, 9, and 10, and there you'll see them. He basically asked for three things. First thing is this. He prays, God, inhabit your temple. Verse 8, arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark, that's not Noah's ark, that's the ark of the covenant. Remember that box with the cherubim overladen with gold, that place where God promised to dwell through his glory. And so arise, O Lord, go to your resting place. That is the temple which we just built. You and the ark of your might. So there's his first request. 
is that God would inhabit his temple. There's a second request, verse 9, that God would bless his people. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. And there's a third request. brings us into the realm of verse 10. He prays that God would preserve his anointed for the sake of your servant David, my father. Oh, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. So we have the historical setting. It is the completion and the dedication of the temple of the Lord. And we hear Solomon praying on that wonderful occasion for these three things, that God would inhabit his temple, God would bless his people, God would preserve his anointed. But the rest of the psalm isn't found back there in 2 Chronicles 6. I think we're safe to assume that Solomon penned it in its entirety at that time, but only these three verses are actually cited or recorded back in that context. But what do we have in the rest of the psalm? Well, basically what we have are two sections then, and here's where we enter into the structure, two sections surrounding this central prayer in which we have these three requests. And in these two sections, one on the front, one on the back, Solomon makes two appeals. And so basically he prays, he makes his threefold request, but he gives two appeals to buttress his request. Here's why, O Lord God, you should hear me. Here's why you should answer my prayer. Here is my appeal to you. And so in verses 1 through 7, we have appeal number 1. And what does he appeal to? He appeals to David's devotion. Look at what he says at the outset of verse 1. Remember, O Lord. These are beautiful words. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. What's going on there? Well, that's 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. What's happening? David has just become king. And David in his zeal. And David, in his enthusiasm for the Lord, and as an act of devotion, he decides what? It's time to bring the Ark of the Covenant. Where? To Jerusalem. And not only is it time to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, it is well beyond time to build a house, to erect a a temple in which we can place the Ark of the Covenant and God can bless us with His dwelling presence. Many of you know the story. David expresses that desire, that yearning. He makes that vow to the prophet Nathan, right? And Nathan comes back and says, that's not the way it's going to be, David. No, no, no. It's going to be your son. It will be Solomon who builds the temple. But God does not disregard David's devotion. God does not disregard the desire of David's heart. David was a man after God's own heart, despite his failures, despite his obvious shortcomings, and despite his sins, he was a man after God's own heart. And so Solomon makes his threefold request. When, once the temple is completed, once it's dedicated, here's what I want. I want that God would inhabit his temple, he would bless his people, he would preserve his anointed. And here's, here's one of the appeals I'm making, O Lord. It's simply this, remember my father's devotion. 
And for my Father's sake, hear my prayer. But there's a second appeal. It comes after the central prayer request in verses 8, 9, and 10. It begins in verse 11 and goes right through to the end of the psalm, verse 18. And this appeal is simply this, appeal number two. Solomon turns, he appeals to God's covenant. God's covenant. And so look at what he says in the 11th verse. There is a parallelism here. Verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath. Go back to verse 2 just for a moment. How he, that is David, swore to the Lord. And so David swore to the Lord. David made a vow to the Almighty. David made an oath. He expressed his devotion, his desire to build a house for the Lord. Well, here's the second appeal. It's not David's oath. It's not what David swore. It's not David's covenant. It's the Lord's covenant, verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body. I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Where does that come from? I asked you to find another passage of Scripture, didn't I? You thought I'd forgotten. I haven't forgotten. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7. And look at what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Christian. Understand this, when it comes to God's plan of salvation, when it comes to the history of redemption, the history of salvation, 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important passages of Scripture. It is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible for understanding God's plan of redemption. And look at what we read here. The Lord is speaking, beginning in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled, the Lord is speaking through Nathan to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is the text that is in view In Psalm 132, that is the text, that is the covenant, that is the promise, that is the oath to which Solomon appeals as he makes his threefold request. Lord, you swore to my father David a sure oath from which you will not turn back. Here it is. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. And then in verses 13 through 18, as he continues to make this appeal, what he does is he repeats the three requests he made in verses 8, 9, and 10, setting them in the context of the covenant. So we're going to jump back and forth here. This is grammatical structure. Uh, In Hebrew, they use a lot of parallelisms. 
And that's what we have here in this psalm, a, new, a ton of parallelisms. And these three we, mu- we must focus on to understand the flow. Look at verse 8, the request. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And so I'm praying that God would inhabit his temple, his resting place, his dwelling place, and I am appealing to his covenant. And now look at what we read in verses 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Now go back and look at the second request, verse 9, that God would bless his people. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy. Now look at verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. Now look at the third request, verse 10. These are parallelisms. For the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Now look at verse 17. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him his crown will shine. It's a beautiful song. It is pure poetry. As Solomon makes this prayer request upon the dedication of the temple, that God would inhabit this place, this temple, make it his resting place, his dwelling place, that God would bless his people, and that God would preserve his anointed. And God, here here is why I am making these requests, not because of any merit in me, not because I'm a a particularly special man and I think uh, you owe it to me to listen to me. No, here, here is my appeal. It's very simple, very straightforward to the point. I'm appealing to my father David's devotion for his sake. And I am appealing to your own promise. I am appealing to the oath you swore. I am appealing to your covenant. And so there we have the setting and the structure. We move into its scope and significance. What are we to make of all this? Well, it has an immediate fulfillment, doesn't it? We go back to Second Chronicles 6, that when Solomon does pray this prayer, when he does pen this psalm, the Lord does answer that threefold request. The Shekinah glory does descend, and it fills the most holy place in the temple. God does dwell from in Zion. He does dwell in the midst of his people. Uh, God answers that second request. He blesses his people. He fills them with joy. And Solomon's reign is, without question, the most prosperous period in the history of the nation of Israel. As God blesses the nation from on high. And God does preserve his anointed. He establishes Solomon as king over the entire kingdom and actually expands his boundaries whereby tribute is coming from as far from beyond the Euphrates, beyond the Nile, from regions that David could only have imagined of. And so we do have an immediate fulfillment of this prayer request. But to really understand it, we need to come to grips with verse 12 of Psalm 132. 
Focus in on it. And listen carefully here to what we read. Again, this is the covenant as it was made with David back in 2 Samuel 7. And notice, please, it is a conditional clause. If, he's speaking to David, your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Meaning what? Simply this. That the covenant back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it is conditional. It is conditional upon what? Obedience. Obedience. Now you think of Solomon. And Solomon in all his splendor and glory, king over Israel. And Solomon at some point in his reign, what does he begin to do? He begins to depart from God's law. He begins to depart from God's testimonies. And by the time his reign is done, he has built shrines and temples throughout Israel for just about every false god under heaven. What happens when Solomon dies? His son Rehoboam gets what? Only one tribe. It is Judah. The entire northern kingdom The rest of the tribes are lost to the line of David. They fall under the rule of Jeroboam. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The northern kingdom only lasts a couple hundred years. All of those kings, evil in a word. All of those kings, idolatrous. All of those kings disregarding the covenant. And in 722 B.C., what did God do? He did the unimaginable, the unthinkable. He sent the Assyrians, a horde of Gentiles, barbarians, swooping down upon the northern kingdom, and they completely obliterated it and swept it away. The southern kingdom, Judah, lasted another maybe 150 years. Because you see, in David's line, after Rehoboam, There were one or two bright spots, one or two who checked the downward spiral, but it was the history of of Judah, even the southern kingdom, it was like this, and then once in a while checked by a godly king, and then after his death it would plummet again, and then maybe checked for a little while, and then down it would go, and in 586 BC, what did God do? Again, the unimaginable, the unthinkable. He raised up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, remember Nebuchadnezzar? And he sent these wild hordes to prey upon Judah, to sack and destroy Jerusalem, and to burn his own temple to the ground. Here's the question. But what about his covenant? God swore. Out of his steadfast, I will not take my steadfast love from you like I took it from Saul. This will be an eternal covenant. How is it that after 586, with Jerusalem decimated, the temple destroyed, there is never again a king sitting on the throne of David? What happened to his covenant? What happened to his promises? And here is what we must not lose sight of. The covenant is a conditional covenant. It is conditional upon obedience. But let me repeat it. Let me tweak it. The covenant 
is unconditionally conditional. I need to pause for three seconds and let that sink in. The covenant is unconditionally conditional. It is conditional upon the king's obedience. It is unconditional. Why? Because God has his own king in view. He always had one man in view. He was always thinking of only one person, one individual. He was thinking of the same man he was thinking of when he covenanted with Abraham. In your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He was thinking of the same individual he was thinking of when he covenanted with Adam. The seed of the woman will crush the seed, the head of the serpent. God in His eternal, unchangeable, unalterable plan has always, always, always had just one person in view. One person before Him. One person who is the object of His eternal delight. It is His own Son. And when He entered into that covenant with Adam, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He was thinking of that man. And when he entered into that covenant with Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, he was thinking of that one man. And when he established this covenant with David, I will take someone from your loins, your own flesh and blood, your living descendant, and I will establish his throne, I will establish his kingdom forever. He was thinking of one individual, and one individual alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you fast forward to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, and we have that angel Gabriel. He appeals to Mary. Mary is expecting. She's with child, and Gabriel announces. Now listen closely to what he says. Oh, so closely. Luke chapter 1. He, he's referring to her offspring. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The covenant is unconditionally conditional. It is conditional on absolute perfect obedience, but it is unconditional because the Father Himself has His Son in view, and it is His Son in His incarnation who obeys His Father perfectly, and His Father has given to Him, He who is also a descendant, physical descendant of David, He has established His throne, and He has established His kingdom forever. I want you to hear another passage of Scripture. I know I've been jumping around a lot, but we are, we are entering to the realms of the history of redemptive history, God's plan of salvation. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And there are a number of Jews before him as he preaches, as he waxes eloquent. And in Acts chapter 2, he states the following, and he's speaking of David. This is fascinating. He's speaking of David. Knowing, so David knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. 
that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Let me repeat that. David, knowing that God had sworn, he had covenanted, he had promised with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants, physical descendants, on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wow. David had better grasp on Scripture than many of us do today. He foresaw. David himself spoke. For example, Psalm 16 spoke of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When did God declare his son to be king? When did God give the throne of David to his beloved son? When did God establish this man, Jesus Christ, his eternal son? When did he establish his kingdom forever? It was at the moment of his resurrection, the moment of his ascension, the moment of his exaltation, when he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the glory on high. Do you understand who the Lord Jesus is? He is king. His throne has been established. And His throne, His dominion, and His kingdom, they exist forever. And so as we approach Psalm 132, we see the fulfillment of this. Beyond that immediate fulfillment in Solomon, we see it ultimately fulfilled and realized and culminating in the Lord Jesus. And so we interpret this psalm through the fulfillment of God's covenant in Christ. And so you think of Solomon's three requests in verses 8, 9, and 10. And you think of how they're repeated. Remember the parallelisms. Verses 13 through 18. We see these three requests fulfilled now. God does inhabit His temple, just as He promised. Look at verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. The Lord Jesus Christ is the temple of the living God. And all who are one with the Lord Jesus Christ, they become what? The temple of the living God. As Paul celebrates in 1 Timothy 3.15, we, the church of the living God, we are the household of God. He has fulfilled this promise. He dwells among His people. The second request is what? That He might bless His people. Look at verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. All of them fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That when we're brought to Christ, the one who lived for us, the one who died for us, the one who has been risen from the dead for us, That as we're brought into union with Him and we become one with Him by faith, what's ours actually becomes His. He takes the penalty of our sin and He has borne it in full upon Calvary's cross. And wonder of wonders, by virtue of that union with Christ, what was His now becomes ours. We're adopted as sons. We're made priests of the living God. Our sins are forgiven. We now stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are heirs of salvation. We have promises concerning this eternal glory yet to be revealed, a new heavens and a new earth. God has blessed His people in Christ. And the third request, what was it for? 
that God might preserve his anointed. He has done so, just as he promised he would do. Look at verse 17. There, I will make a horn to sprout for David. A horn, speaking of what? Splendor, glory. You think, you hunters of that uh, quiet, cool morning, frost-laden ground, and out comes that mature buck with those enormous antlers. They are what? His splendor. They are his glory. And here we see this horn that will sprout for David. Speaking of Christ's glory. Speaking of Christ's splendor. He emphasizes the fact that this kingdom is not only glorious, it's everlasting. Look at the last part of verse 17. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. It is a lamp that does not go out. It is a lamp which burns for all eternity. Notice thirdly what he says in verse 18, that this kingdom is a triumphant kingdom. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And we think of the father's promise to his son upon that installation service on high, that great inauguration ceremony, that tremendous moment of exaltation when the father says to the son, Sit at my right hand until, until when I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's what's going on right now. Christ has established his kingdom. Christ does reign. It is a glorious kingdom. It is an everlasting kingdom. And it is a triumphant kingdom. And we see God keeping his promise to David in ways unimaginable to many. Ways that they never perceived, never foresaw. God making promises which extended well beyond an actual physical building. Promises which extend well beyond a little piece of territory land which sits to the east of the Mediterranean. Promises which extend well beyond the Jewish nation but promises which are of a universal nature, God's kingdom, His plan from the beginning, a plan focusing, culminating in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we move thirdly from setting and structure, from scope and significance to application. I want to emphasize, emphasize as we draw this all together and bring this home, there are two Enlivening truths, that might be a good way to say it, to faith cultivating, hope enlarging, enlarging, enlivening truths which emerge from this psalm. The first is this, God's covenant does not change. That should thrill you, believer. If it doesn't, you do not yet understand the full depth of the gospel. God's covenant does not change. If you noticed how many times Solomon mentions David in this psalm, verse 1, remember, O Lord, in David's favor. Verse 10, for the sake of your servant David. Verse 11, the Lord swore to David. And then over him, verse 17, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. It's for David's sake. It's for David's sake. It's for David's sake. Solomon appeals time and time again to his father. And he always has in view, always has before him, what? The promise that God made to his father. And he is appealing to God, not on the basis of his obedience. 
He's appealing to God, not on the basis of his own righteousness. He is appealing to God, not on the basis of his performance. He is appealing to God for David's sake and for the sake of the covenant. Well, how like us as Christians? Every appeal we make to the Lord Jesus Christ is for what? It is for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. I do not come before Almighty God. Oh, for my sake, Lord. I do not come before Almighty God making an appeal to my past performance. I do not come before God making an appeal directing His attention to the life I've lived. I do not come before God starting to weigh in the balance the things which I think outweigh good things which outweigh my bad things. I do not come making any appeal to me at all. I come to God and my appeal is what? For Christ's sake. My mother taught me a little prayer when I was maybe four years of age, maybe younger, but I remember reciting it at four years of of age. She would sit on the edge of my bed and Stephen's time to pray now, and so I would dutifully pray as I lay me down to sleep. As I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, take me to heaven for Jesus' sake. That prayer used to terrify me. If I die before I wake, here's my mother sitting there. Pleasant thoughts, pleasant dreams. Off you go to sleep. (laughs) Pay no attention to the green monster under your bed. And off she would go. But we'll leave that aside for a moment. The precious phrase is this. For Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake. I was clueless to it at the time. But how many times I have gone back to it since then. What a wonderful expression, declaration of the gospel. Friend, for Jesus' sake. That's the gospel. There it is in a nutshell. The simplicity of a child's prayer. For Jesus' sake. That's my only plea. That's my only recourse. That's the only thing I cling to. That's the only thing I turn to. It is the only thing I stand upon. God, help me if it depends on me. Oh, God, help me if it depends on my past performance. God, help me if it depends on how my morning went. No, it is for Christ's sake. Christ's sake alone. And the covenant that God has made with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby He has given His people to Christ. All whom the Father has given me will come to me. And none shall be cast out, none shall be lost, none shall be ripped from the Father's hand. And in accordance with that eternal covenant, what has the Lord Jesus done? He has fulfilled all righteousness on behalf of His people. He has lived that perfect life. Not only that, He has died on behalf of His people, bearing their punishment and their judgment. Not only that, He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where He lives forevermore to make intercession on behalf of His people. In other words, He is praying efficaciously to His Father, that His Father might accomplish all that Christ purchased through His perfect life and His perfect death. His crucifixion, His resurrection, and His ascension. For Christ's sake... Oh, may you remember Christ's humility, not my pride. Oh, may you remember His righteousness, not my unrighteousness. May you remember His obedience, not my disobedience. May you remember His faithfulness, not my unfaithfulness. May you remember His devotion, not my apathy. May you remember His love and not my cold, cold heart. God's covenant does not change.
The second enlivening truth is this, God's plan does not change. The best laid plans of mice and men go off awry, but God's plan never deviates. There are no forces outside of God that in any way, size, shape, or form can impede, stop, alter, change, manipulate his plan. It rests on unrivaled power. It rests in unsearchable wisdom. Oh, it rests in unquestionable, unsearchable knowledge. This provides perspective, doesn't it? We delve into Psalm 132, and I know, friends, I know Christians, it's tricky. You get into a psalm like this, what has this got to do with the 21st century? Friend, it's got everything to do with the 21st century. What has this got to do with my life? It has everything to do with your life. What has this got to do with child rearing? Absolutely everything. Here is perspective. Here is an eternal perspective. It puts everything. Here is ultimate reality, which gives reality to every sphere of life. That God is bringing His eternal plan to fruition. Just as He has always planned, it culminates in the summing up of all things in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is reigning now. He is calling forth His people to Himself by the Word and by the Spirit. He is building His church whereby the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And the day is coming when He will return and this present kingdom of grace will give way to that future kingdom of glory, and the meek shall inherit the earth. Is this relevant? This is life. This is reality. This is how I get up in the morning, put one sock on, one shoe on. This is how I keep going, by seeing the big picture. Oh, this provides correction, doesn't it? Because we so often lose sight of the big picture. We get distracted. We start to give our time to so many things of a trivial nature. I love Tex-Mex. I really do. There's a public confession. I love Tex-Mex. I love chicken fajitas. I love Uncle Julio's in Dallas. My problem is this. I sit at the table of Uncle Julio's in Dallas, and I order my chicken fajitas. It takes a while for them to come, and then what do they plunk on the table in front of me? Chips and salsa. Nothing against chips and salsa, but they're not chicken fajitas. What do I do? I fill up on chips and salsa. You ever been there? Christian, that's what most of us are doing. Filling up on chips and salsa. Missing out on the big picture. Filling our lives with the trivial. Losing sight of the eternal. Losing sight, perspective of the big picture. Oh, how this provides correction. It also provides motivation. It provides motivation. Many of us, if not all of us, think the goal of life is to somehow get above the mundane. That if only I could get above the mundane, if only I could overcome the boring, if only I could overcome the everyday grind, somehow all would be better. Now, that is naive thinking. It is also entirely unbiblical thinking. Now, Paul Tripp expressed it well. He says, friend, if God does not rule your mundane, then he does not rule you because the mundane is where you live. This provides perspective. We live for our king's sake. And that makes everything an act of worship. Changing diapers. Cutting the grass. Fixing a faucet. Doing homework. Balancing the checkbook. Teaching a class. Working overtime. Celebrating a birthday. Preparing a meal. And on and on and on and on and on it goes. Most of it mundane. It is where we live. 
but is infused with eternal significance when we do it for Christ's sake. It provides comfort. Do you feel beaten down? Do you feel worn out? Well, this present suffering, this present affliction is not worth comparing to future glory. The king has been installed. The kingdom has already started. The kingdom already reigns. He reigns now through His church by His Word and by His Spirit. He reigns as He calls His people to Himself. It is this present kingdom of grace. It is an invisible kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. But the day is coming when the invisible will give way to the visible. The spiritual will give way to the physical. When Christ will return again, establishing a new heavens and a new earth and the kingdom, the kingdom that has already been inaugurated, it will be consummated. Do you feel beaten down? Do you feel worn out? Fix your eyes upon the king and not your present circumstances. And this provides hope. The final reality is the new heavens and the new earth. And so by faith right now, I look forward to the final fulfillment of the promises. And I look backward to Calvary's cross where the Lord Jesus Christ purchased those promises. And that enlarges my faith. It strengthens my hope. And I wait confidently and expectantly for what God has promised. We sing a hymn, and actually we're going to sing it a little later in conclusion. Let me read it for you now because it brings... This psalm to a wonderful culmination resonates with the heart, really just caps off this practical application, and it prepares us now for what is coming as we actually celebrate visibly the covenant, that of which we have been speaking. We partake of the bread, we partake of the cup in remembrance and celebration of this covenant. Hear the words of this song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. Oh, and he shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found. In him, my righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Our God in heaven on high. We ask now that by your spirit you might visit us through the proclamation of your word, through our participation in these elements. May you draw forth faith from our hearts that we might indeed feed spiritually upon your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior in whose name we ask it. Amen.